Hello and welcome to Pieces of History, I'm Colin McGrath. Each week I'll be delving into some renowned and lesser known events throughout history. This week I'll be looking into the rise of Dubai from humble beginnings as a small fishing settlement on the banks of the Persian Gulf to the largest and most populous city in the United Arab Emirates. Dubai is located on the southeast coast of the Persian Gulf. If you're unsure of where the Persian Gulf is, it is a body of water that is surrounded by Iran to the north, Iraq, Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar to the west, and the United Arab Emirates to the south. Dubai is one of seven United Arab Emirates consisting of Abu Dhabi, which serves as the capital, Ajman, Dubai, Vijara, Ras Al Haima, Sharjah, and Umm Al Kawain. The Emirates border Oman to the east and Saudi Arabia to the south and west. The official religion is Islam and Arabic is the official language of the country. The Emirates are widely known as being oil rich with having the 7th largest reserves in the world producing 97.8 million barrels a year according to the Organisation of the Petroleum Exporting Countries or OPEC for short. Dubai is known as a uniquely modern city with towering skyscrapers, a thriving tourism industry, international transport hub and leading financial centre for the Middle East. But it wasn't always like this. The original settlement of Dubai can be traced back to 3000 BCE. The site on which Dubai now sits used to be a vast mangrove swamp, which dried up and became an inhospitable desert. It is thought that Bronze Age nomadic cattle herders were the first to arrive in the area and by 2500 BCE they had established a thriving palm plantation. Skip a few millennia and by the 5th century AD the area had become a caravan station along the trade route linking Oman to Iraq. The odds of anyone settling in this area were low as the weather plays a crucial part of the landscape of the region. The average temperature during the peak of the summer can reach 42 degrees centigrade or 107 in Fahrenheit which has created a spectacular landscape from gorges where the earth has seemingly been ripped open to large swathes of desert that stretch as far as the eye can see. The tidal flats just off the coast extend for miles covered in a white salt crust called sabaka. The sabaka belts are useless for farming and treacherous for travel. The coast of Dubai is not conducive to seafaring due to the sandbanks and low-lying islands. Luckily Dubai has a shallow tidal inlet which makes a shelter for small boats and allows ships to anchor offshore for visitors to make way onto land in rowboats. In 630 Islam arrived in the lower gulf in the form of a handwritten letter from the Prophet Muhammad. He sent an emissary to the mountain town of Nizwa in Oman to deliver an invitation for the local people to convert to the new religion. During this time, the citizens of the area, that is now called the United Arab Emirates, were under the control of, of the Omanis and so they followed their rulers and also converted to the new religion. A delegation was sent to meet with the Prophet in Medina and it has been said that he welcomed the tribes and sent them home with instructions on how to pray and wash. The relationship between Dubai and its neighbours with Islam was set on a course that would continue to this very day. Life continued in this region as it had for the previous millennia, with the local people etching out a living based on fishing, pearl diving, boat building and providing accommodation and sustenance for the traders who would pass through on their way to sell gold, spices and textiles. In 1506 the Portuguese arrived in the form of Captain Alfonso de Albuquerque. The Portuguese crown handed Al- Albuquerque the task of forging a trade route to India by way of Africa and Arabia. This was the first time the region had come into contact with people from Western Europe and it was not a great first impression. 
Albuquerque destroyed every Arab vessel he saw. He sacked towns in Oman, and when they landed in Khor Fakan, about 150 kilometers around the peninsula from Dubai, he decided that the reception that the locals had given him was not submissive enough, and so he had his men unsheathe their swords and hack off the noses and ears of anyone they came in contact with. Using their bayonets, they captured or killed men and women and set alight to their houses and horse stables. This was a truly horrifying introduction to the men from the west for the local people of the peninsula. The British arrived in the area nearly 300 years later and their presence was not wholly welcomed. In the view of the Arabs, there was no reason why one set of Christians would act any differently from another. The arrival of the British came shortly after the Ben Yassi tribe assumed power in 1793 and settled in Abu Dhabi, making Dubai a dependency. The next number of years was beset with many tribal wars, which discouraged foreign traders from passing through and in turn affected the economy. By 1800, Dubai was now a wall city. The Al Fatih Fort was built on the site of where Dubai now sits. By 1820, the British had forged a presence in the area by negotiating a truce with local tribes, which came to form the early signs of the UAE. It was called Trucial Oman, the Trucial Coast, or the Trucial States. The region didn't have any standing armies, central authorities or federal government but the British decided to draw borders for each territory based on each sheikdom and the fault lines between tribes. In 1833, 800 members of the Ben Yass tribe, led by the Maktoum family, settled at the mouth of the Creek of Dubai. The signing of the Perpetual Treaty of Maritime Peace in 1819 ensured that the family joined forces with the British Empire that belong a long relationship that would last right up to the present day. The British were able to keep the family in power throughout various challenges to their dominance by strengthening settlements and bringing in immigrants who would help build the foundations of the city that we see today. Dubai, now a British protectorate, would be safeguarded until the independence and establishment of the United Arab Emirates on the 2nd of December 1971, immediately following the British withdrawal from its treaty obligations. Fifteen years after they had signed the agreement to form the Trucial States, the British further strengthened their grip in the region in 1835 by the signing of a series of maritime defence treaties, collectively known as the Maritime Truce, which Britain signed with the leaders of the Trucial States, Dubai being one of them. Writing about the British in the region during this period, James Oatley states, quote, There is a common perception in the Gulf today that these treaties were imposed from above against the wishes of the Gulf rulers. The opposite, in fact, was the case. The rulers actively sought British protection. The treaties could not have been established in the first place without their approval and support. End quote. Only further goes on to say, quote, The British had no interests in eastern Arabia beyond the port of Muscat. All that changed in 1797. From that year onward, maritime tolls and raiding by Arabs of the lower Gulf, similar to the Bedouin practices along desert trade routes, increasingly threatened British Indian shipping. End quote. By the late 1830s, the area around the Persian Gulf was of strategic value to Europeans and also to the Ottoman Empire. The trade lines between Europe and India were too valuable for the British not to be in control of. Members of the Wahhabi tribe, now the leaders of Saudi Arabia, were active in the area and were often in conflict with the new settlers. The Wahhabis stoked hostility to the British and let it be known to any Muslim who befriended them. At the time the Ottomans were in control of modern-day Iraq, including Basra, which sits at the north of the Persian Gulf and had some influence in Saudi Arabia. 
In the 1870s, Dubai became the principal port on the Gulf Coast, with pearling the mainstay. Pearling at the time was a dangerous job as locals would dive into the waters with nothing more than a nose clip, a leather sack and a rock attached to their leg. The pearls gathered from the Gulf were of great interest to traders thanks to the blush of pink, which were a must for the wealthy of India and Europe. The industry boomed by the late 19th century with a British surveyor claiming that Gulf pearl exports ran to three quarters of a million British pounds. That's over 60 million in today's market. The pearl industry alone amounted to 95% of the Gulf's economy. In 1892, foreign traders were drawn into Dubai due to the declaration that they would be exempt from tax. The population doubled with the booming pearl industry. Indian and Pakistani traders also came into the area to increase the diversity of the population. By the turn of the 20th century, Dubai was a successful port. The Souk, Arabic for market, on the Deira side of the creek was the largest on the coast with approximately 350 shops and a steady throng of visitors and businessmen. By 1914, as the horrors of the First World War were being unleashed on battlefields all throughout Western Europe, a shockwave was being felt thousands of miles away in Dubai. Unfortunately for those living under the Trucal States, life changed dramatically during this period. Sheikha Hasim al-Sawadi, one of the first female Emirati photographers, gave an account of what her parents lived through during the war. Quote, the world was in chaos and the British could not provide the necessities for the local people which led them to starve. It was a very tough time for everybody. The people themselves did not have much to live on as they either worked in farming, fishery or the pearl diving industries. End quote. Dubai's economy collapsed during this period and would continue to do so into the 1920s and 1930s. By the late 1930s, the local people were already struggling to cope with the lack of food and money, and to avoid starvation, many had migrated to Kuwait and Bahrain. Businesses came to a standstill, citizens started taking the jobs offered by the wealthier, and dates would soon be offered to people as a daily wage. Families were struggling to stay afloat, as Sheikha states, quote, People were also putting their children into the care of wealthier families as they could no, no longer support them. That way, parents would be assured that at least one of their children would be taken care of and survive." End quote. People from Dubai and the other Emirates have accustomed to date years by the most important events that took place, and that year was also known as the Senate Al-Qahat, Year of the Starvation and Poverty. In Bur, Dubai, a historic district in the city, a raging fire broke out, tearing down homes and shops. Another fire broke out running from El Fahi Fort to the Al Shinganga area which burnt people's homes to ashes. Not all houses were made of stone because local people could not afford to build with this expensive material. They lived in homes made from palm trees. This period of time was known as Shinat al-Hayya, or Year of the Fire. Authorities in Dubai decided to take action during this time. The Year of Identification was introduced, meaning that families with limited income were ordered to have identification cards so that food could be distributed to them. Without these cards, they would have nothing to live on. The average income of a citizen in Dubai was only 2 rupees per month, which was not enough to buy sugar, as 4 kilograms of sugar cost 30 rupees. Even the wealthy in the town had a problem buying food due to a lack of foodstuffs in the region. As the Second World War began, the value of pearls crashed, which in turn triggered a famine. Malnourishment was widespread in the region, with other knock-on effects such as bankruptcies for those dependent on the pearl trade, traders leaving for more stable regions, schools closing, 
foreign teachers leaving and local people resorting to eating locusts, leaves and lizards to survive. Deaths were inevitable and in regions such as Ras al Khama, nomads in the interior died from starvation. It wasn't until 1946 that the economy of Dubai picked up. The British bank opened its first branch near Dubai Creek and goods consisting of textiles, wood, building materials and a few cosmetics were imported into the country, coming from Iraq, Iran, India and the East African coast. Dubai took another hit at the beginning of the 1950s when artificial pearls were invented in Japan. The pearl industry in the region struggled to survive. But things began to change in the Emirate with the arrival of Sheikh Rashid to the throne. I can't discuss the history of Dubai without mentioning the Maktoum family. They are the people who have had an unbroken rule over the state since 1833 until the present day. Born from the Banyasi tribe, the Maktoum family originally hailed from a place called Aiva, a collection of villages that lie 75 miles from the coast in the west of the United Arab Emirates. When translated, the Ban Yas means son of Yas. The tribe divided into two branches, the Al Bufala branch, which contains the Al Nahan family, current rulers of Abu Dhabi, and their cousins on the other branch of the Ban Yas tree, the Maktoum family, current leaders of Dubai. The story begins in 1833 when the leader of the Ban Yas tribe, Sheikh Tanun, was murdered by his brother Khalifa. It was said that members of the Maktoum family were so enraged by this action by Khalifa that 800 of them decided to leave and move north towards the coast. This decision ensured that the group would be out of reach of the Al Nahans and they could start their own settlement without the politics of having to deal with other tribes and extended family members. When the Maktoums arrived in Dubai, they almost doubled the population of the village overnight. They took over the running of the settlement, including the fort, which was an important defensive structure, and declared two sheikhs. Oban bin Saad and Maktoum bin Bhutti as outright leaders who would lead the settlement. At the time, the British recognised the regime change and confirmed the place of the Maktoum in Dubai. The significance of the British confirming their allegiance with the House of Maktoum was pivotal in the history of Dubai as it ensured that they could nurture and control the area with a family who were happy to work with a power who would keep them in their position of strength in the region. One of the key aspects of this relationship and the one that would go on to influence Dubai until the present day, was the British use of immigrants to trade in the area. Immigrants arrived to work, trade and live in the village. Dubai was different from other places in the region in that they welcomed travellers rather than keeping outsiders out. Three years after their arrival, Sheikh Oban died, and so Sheikh Maktoum cemented his status as outright leader in 1836. Unfortunately for the citizens of the newly established village, life expectancy was short. Up until about 1960, the average age of a resident was 45. Sheikh Maktoum Ben Bhutti died in 1852. His brother took over the village for seven years until he died in 1859. His nephew lasted a little while longer, dying in 1886, and then his brother took over and reigned until 1894. In total, seven men ruled Dubai from 1833 until 1912. As the 20th century came into view, the longevity of the family has improved. Three men ruled from 1912 until 2006, with Sheikh Mohammed bin being the latest and 11th ruler of Dubai. Dubai has never had a sheikh overthrown or murdered in its 175 year history. In Abu Dhabi, it's a different story. Coups and fratricides, the killing of one's brother or sister, are commonplace. In Shahara, another emirate in the UAE, 
the third largest and third most populous city in the country, has been fraught with palace murders and coup attempts right into the 1980s. It hasn't always been plain sailing for the Maktoum family. In March 1939, Sheikh Rashid was due to get married to Sheikha Latifa, a member of the Abu Dhabi royal family. Latifa's father, Sheikh Hamdan, was assassinated by two of his brothers, which led to Latifa and her mother to flee to Dubai. During this period, there were rebels who were pushing for democratic reforms in the country. The rebels held land in Deira, which is where Latifa lived. After some negotiation, the rebels agreed to a ceasefire in order for the wedding to take place. Attached to Rashid's wedding party was native Bedouin, a group of nomadic people tied to the Maktoum family. It was explained to the rebels that as part of the wedding ceremony, the Bedouin would fire a volley of shots into the air to mark the end of the celebrations. Unfortunately for the rebels, this was a ruse. The Bedouin gunned down leading members of the rebellion, including the leader, Hashir bin Rashid. Another leader of the group, Sheikh Mani, was able to flee to the safety of Shara. The rebellion was quelled and the wedding went on ahead as planned. Sheikh Rashid and Sheikh Latifa went on to have five daughters and four sons, two of which went on to rule the emirate. The massacre at the wedding is something that has been glossed over when it comes to official documentation relating to the history of Dubai. Local books don't mention this incident and this demonstration of power and violence is seen as something of an embarrassment to the family. As John Cohn writes, quote, More remarkable was the success of the operation. Sheikh Rashid's wedding rescued his dynasty. It was as if the Maktoum's penchant for risk-taking had ebbed under Sheikh's seed, Rashid's father, and needed a flash of violence to get it back. End quote. The massacre was also a victory for the British, as the uprising could have destabilised the region, but thankfully the actions of Rashid ensured that the emirate would stay in the hands of the family who were entrusted by the empire some hundred years before. Our story of Dubai continues with the reign of Rashid in the 1950s through the next few decades. Once Rashid came to power after the death of his father in 1958, he began to change how the city was governed. In his first year in power, he built a modern port. Within four years, the region would have electricity and running water. A bridge spanning the creek would emerge and street lighting finally illuminated the village shortly after. Rashid was a man of the desert. He rode a horse even though he owned a car. He drew his legs underneath him when sitting on a couch. He smoked a traditional pipe and would often ask for things to be explained simply and to the point. He was a skilled politician who engaged with his neighbours in Saudi Arabia and Iran and was able to keep close ties with the court in Abu Dhabi when he married Sheikha Latifa in 1939. He was known as a hard worker and this ethic was transferred to his court. He rose before daylight and worked late into the evening. During the 1950s, the economy in Dubai wasn't in good shape. The creek silted up, ships had to anchor offshore and this led to goods having to wait to come ashore based on the tide. Not a productive way to conduct trade. Rashid decided to spring into action and raise the £60,000 to dredge the creek and to build up the banks. In 1954, this amount of money equated to several years worth of the town's total economic output. Once the work was complete, the port was able to open up to larger ships and Dubai's port became one of the most important trading posts in the region. The families that lent money to the project were rewarded with important business contracts and were made extremely wealthy from the connections that they were able to make thanks to the development. Rashid invested into an electric company to ensure that Dubai could be lit up at night. 
1961, a new generating plant was launched and the new lighting system ensured that refrigerators, radios and air conditioners could run after the sun went down. 1961 was a pivotal year in the development of the town as money given by Sheikh al-Altani, the Emir of Qatar, for marrying Sheikh Rashid's eldest daughter in 1958, allowed for the development of the first paved road, the first bridge and the first water system in the Emirate. Several years later, fresh water was discovered 15 miles south of the settlement. In 1968, the population finally had running water. It was a busy time in the growth of Dubai as they also gained a police force, television broadcasters, radio stations and the use of concrete. One of the most important developments in the progress of Dubai was the airport. Built in 1959, the airport, with one airfield made of compacted sand, allowed the Emirate to act as a stop-off for planes either dropping off cargo into the region or for travellers to use the town as a hub to travel further afield. The airport today, the world's busiest airport by international passenger traffic, was one of the best investments that Sheikh Rashid made during his early tenure as ruler as he was quick to spot the potential of an airport in the region as he stated, quote, If a person lands in Dubai, he will take a taxi, buy a packet of cigarettes, have a meal, and we will benefit. End quote. It can be seen why Rashid has been called the father of modern Dubai. By the beginning of the 1960s, during the rapid transformation in the landscape of Dubai, the British no longer had the money, political backing or support at home to continue to provide security and support in the region. The British hold in the Persian Gulf started to slip from their grasp in 1961 whenever they dissolved their protectorate in Kuwait. During the 1940s and 1950s, the British had been fatigued by years of war, rising anti-colonial sentiment throughout their empire and an overstretching of resources. In 1968, the Labour government announced that it would withdraw all its forces from the region in 1971. In the US, the decision wasn't received well. US Secretary of State, Dean Rusk, ridiculed the move as the action of Little England. Sheikh Rashid stated, quote, The whole coast, people and rulers, would all support the retaining of British forces in the Gulf. End quote. It still showed, even 150 years after the British appeared in the region, that they were still a force that were respected and welcomed. After the British started to withdraw from Dubai in the 1960s, the area was still considered the poorer relatives in the region. Egypt, Lebanon and Iraq were basking in an upturn in their economies while Dubai was still sat in darkness. The town didn't give off any light at night when seen from above or whenever ships passed by off the coast. Ships would often miss the town due to the lack of light which made picking up passengers impossible after dark. The economic disasters of the 1930s, 40s and 50s would come to an end in 1966 with the discovery of oil. In August of 1958, the first offshore drilling began in the region with the arrival of the barge, the Enterprise, off Abu Dhabi's Das Island. After the drilling began, the crew noticed blobs of black scum bobbing up to the surface. This strike, known as the Um Scheif strike, was the first oil strike in the area. What wasn't known at the time was that the discovery would lead to the region holding 8% of the world's proven oil reserves. In a stroke of luck, that would propel Abu Dhabi's to among some of the wealthiest people in the world. The numbers at the time were mind-boggling. At $50 a barrel, Abu Dhabi's 92 billion barrels of proven oil reserves are worth $46 trillion. Within seven years, the area would have 25 offshore oil wells and a dozen on land. Oil came slightly later in Dubai than Abu Dhabi, 
with their strike happening 10 years later in 1966. Success in Dubai did not come quickly with the explorations coming up dry throughout the 1950s and the early 1960s. The British exploration company, Petroleum Development, gave up looking in 1963 with nothing to show for their efforts. Sheikh Rashid, the ruler of Dubai at the time, had seen the development of a consortium of local and international firms dedicated to looking for oil in the region. Finally, in 1966, oil was discovered. The well was discovered 15 miles offshore and the news brought with it huge fanfare. Leaflets were scattered with Sheikh Rashid presented with a gift of a jar of crude oil. The oil field on which the discovery was made was called Conquest, or Fatah in Arabic. After many years of waiting, the first export of Dubai's oil came in September 1969. The oil strike brought great riches to the area, with petrodollars rolling into the economy. The government used the revenues to build infrastructure such as schools, hospitals, roads, a communications network, ports and a new airport along with the largest man-made harbour at Yebel Ali on the southern side of the city. The whole region was transformed with a friendly, expatriate-friendly environment being introduced with a zero tax on personal income and low import duties. The 1970s came with even more changes for Dubai, with the dirham becoming the official unit of currency. More oil fields sprang out of the ground in 1972 and 1973. The wealth from oil was apparent, with revenues bringing in two-thirds of gross domestic product. The leader of Dubai at the time, Sheikh Rashid bin Said Al Maktoum, and the leader of Abu Dhabi, Sheikh Zayed bin Sultan Al Nahyan, dreamed of creating a federation of emirates in the region. This was realised in 1971 when Dubai, Abu Dhabi, Shahara, Ajman, Umm al Khawain, Vihara, and the 1972 Ras al Kamana joined to create the United Arab Emirates, with Sheikh Zayed bin Sultan Al Nahyan becoming the first president of the United Arab Emirates. With the formation of the UAE, the country then joined the Arab League, which was then originally started in 1945 to quote, draw closer the relations between member states and coordinate collaboration between them, to safeguard their independence and sovereignty, and to consider in a general way the affairs and interests of the Arab countries. End quote. As the 1970s made way for the 1980s, Dubai's dependence on oil started to change. By 1985, the region only lent on oil for 50% of GDP with trade, construction and services rising in importance to the economy. Some scholars say that Dubai stayed away from being completely reliant on oil by the experiences with the parliament industry at the turn of the 20th century. The diversification of Dubai's economic model made sure that any changes in the oil markets would not disrupt the region too dearly. By 1991, Dubai was producing 410,000 barrels per day. Reserves were beginning to run low and by 2008, they could draw 60,000 barrels a day compared with Abu Dhabi's 2.5 million. The decision to invest in a post-oil economy by Sheikh Rashid bin Said Al Maktoum seemed to be a savvy choice in hindsight. Oil turned out to be the key component in the social, political and economic structure for the future success of Dubai. Oil allowed Dubai to become a central player in the global financial system and world economy. The wealth that was generated from the profits of the oil fields allowed them to navigate economic downturns, recessions and crises better than any other regions. Dubai moved into the 2000s on a very stable footing 
With secure leadership, the same family had ruled the region since the Maktoum family took over in 1833. The army was staffed with officers loyal to the crown. The region enjoyed broad social freedoms compared to others in the region. Women were encouraged to work, alcohol is freely available, and workers from overseas take advantage of the warm climate and low tax rates. Anthony Harris, writing about the relationship between the Maktoum family and the local people states, quote, People don't want to replace their tribal rule. It is my absolute conviction that they are happy with it. The Sheikh makes sure that he's a river to his people through property, jobs and sponsorships. Certainly there is no threat to that system. No threat at all. End quote. The success of the Maktoum family in this area has been a smooth transition from one to the next. Since 1833 they have had 11 leaders all dying of natural deaths while in office. This is somewhat unprecedented in a region with coups, assassinations and fratricides commonplace within other emirates and countries surrounding Dubai. The family have been able to make a stake in big name companies, financial institutions and luxury brands through high profile purchases. The leaders of the city have also been able to invest in prime real estate and have financed the construction in some of the world's most famous buildings including the Burj Khalifa, Palm Islands and Dubai Marina. Another accolade that the city has picked up is a recognition by the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank as being a financial hub in the region. Dubai is now a leading player in tourism, finance, energy, construction and agriculture, playing a leading role in shaping urban and rural landscapes not only in the UAE, but throughout the world. Thanks for joining me on this journey through the rise of Dubai. I hope you enjoyed it. Some of the sources that I use for this episode include Dubai, the story of the world's fastest city by Jim Crane, Keepers of the Golden Shore, a history of the United Arab Emirates by Michael Quentin Morton, and Desert Kingdoms to Global Powers, the rise of the Arab Gulf by Rory Miller. Pieces of History is written and produced by me, Colin McGrath. If you would like to hear more episodes, you can subscribe on iTunes and Spotify, and you can also get involved in the show by leaving comments and show suggestions on Twitter and Instagram at Pieces of History. Thanks for listening.